the media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story. We live in a climate of intolerance against any views that oppose the mainstream narrative whether it's with regards to social justice, political parties, gender ideology, and of course, climate change, the same dogmatic opinions prevail. Despite freedom of speech, there can be serious consequences to speaking one's mind and even communicating facts about scientific issues. Yes, the climate change debate is politicized, and so it's become nearly impossible to have rational discussions about it. We should be working together to solve energy issues and issues arising from natural climate change. But instead, we're arguing over ideologies. That's for sure. And when it comes to science, questioning is key. But many people have forgotten this, making claims that the science is settled, as if a field of inquiry could ever truly be settled in an area as complex as climate science. Our guest today, Dr. Judith Curry, a scientist who has experienced this intolerance firsthand. Dr. Judith Curry is the president and founder of Climate Forecast an innovative organization in weather and climate forecasting. Judith Curry also receives a PhD in geophysical sciences from the University of Chicago. Her latest book, Climate Uncertainty and Risk, was published this year. So welcome to the show, Judith. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's great. So for my first question, here it is. What sort of censorship have you experienced in the academic community regarding your views on climate change, uh, Judith? Well, in November 2009, following the ClimateGate emails, I started speaking out publicly about my concerns that scientists were not making their data publicly available. In fact, they were trying to thwart people from getting the data, thinking that they might be criticized. They were not transparent about their methods. They were dismissive of uncertainty and overconfident. And I was just concerned about the way that they were treating scientists who disagreed with them. And I was also concerned about the political activism that I saw. So I started speaking up about these concerns, you know, not naming names or not in a nasty way in a sense that, you know, we should really try to do better, you know, be more transparent, be more honest about uncertainty and so forth and so on. Well, the climate establishment did not like this at all, okay? And I very quickly learned that thou shalt not publicly criticize important people in the climate establishment, such as journal editors or the IPCC. Otherwise, the wrath of climate, the climatariat will descend on you. Huh, Against, right. so, so the criticisms of me were not so much about the actual science. It was more about the social aspects of climate science. And the climate establishment didn't know what to do with me. Um, in 2011, I guess I, I wrote a blog post criticizing the hockey stick you know, the, the whole hide the decline thing. And then Michael Mann figured out what to do with me. Just call me a denier, you know, that way, you know, throw me, you know, under the bus, put me in the camp, you know, with the cranks and whatever. And that way nobody has to pay attention to me anymore. And 
journalists and everybody decided that this was just a great idea. This is the way to deal with the Judith Curry problem and to dismiss all those uncomfortable issues that she was raising. So, you know, things became uncomfortable for me, you know, um, I would say by about 2012, journalists from the legacy media stopped contacting me. You know, I was efforts to completely marginalize. I heard that I was nominated for a prestigious research award. And even though my CV and accomplishments were much greater than the other candidates, they decided not to give me the award because what would people think because of my views on climate change, (laughs) you know? Wow, that's great. Yeah. So, um, this all became increasingly uncomfortable. At Georgia Tech, I became marginalized. They wanted me to step down as chair. Um, after I did that, they put me in a tiny office, didn't even assign me to teach any courses. And I said, okay, I can see the writing on the wall here. So I started, wow. yeah, I started applying to find another position. I wanted to move out west anyways. Um, and so um, headhunters were contacting me about a number of positions, and I did apply for several of them that were in locations that appealed to me. And the feedback I got from the headhunters is that my CV my CV is great. I interviewed very well. I wrote very good vision statements, but I was essentially unhirable because if you Google Judith Curry at the time, what shows up is Judith Curry climate heretic turns on her colleagues, Judith Curry, serial climate disinformer, Judith Curry, denier. I mean, nobody's going to hire me. You know, the social media profile. They can be pretty vicious vicious when it comes to, you know, climate and all that stuff. I know, but but the irony is that none of this was really about the science. Um, People respect the science that I do and you know, I'm very honest about the uncertainties of any science that I provide. And so, you know, they're not going me after me over the science. They're going after me over the social aspect. You know, I've panned the idea of a, the manufactured IPCC consensus, et cetera. That's a really big one that they didn't like. So um, that's my story. And in 2017, I resigned my tenured position at the university and went to the private sector. Huh. Wow. Well, you know, Dr. Tim Ball, who sadly just passed away, when he was told, oh, you're a skeptic, he would say, thank you. <laughs> because, I mean, isn't being skeptical and trying to prove something wrong part of the whole process of science? Well, it's one of the norms of science. Um, and you know, our our job, science, is to continually reevaluate the data, challenge our assumptions, and reassess our conclusions. That's our job definition. I mean, our but instead, in climate science, it's been perverted. You know, you're successful to the extent that you recite consensus talking points. You know, dot I's and cross T's, and as a result, climate. Science has very much stagnated, you know, over the last decade or so. Climate dynamics, which is at the heart of understanding how the climate systems work, has really become a renaissance subfield, you know, with all the 
impacts and ecologists and economists and all these people calling themselves climate scientists, and they don't understand how this climate works. Mm. And they're very, yeah. you know, it's a relatively small number of people who understand how the, you know, old school people, people who are more senior, some people who are retired, um, you know, the current education system is really downplaying that aspect of climate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's for yeah, sure. Yeah, for sure. And so there's been a lot of ways in, like, the way the politics crept into climate science, but um, one of them that people probably know about is the hockey stick graph and uh, altering the data for that. Have there been many other instances of that happening in the climate change field? Oh, you know, there's been many, there's there's disagreements and uncertainty all over the place. And you see, and and you have this um, science laundering, you know, the PhD thesis has all the background and the caveats. And then they publish scientific paper that sort of cherry picks the, you know, the alarming stuff without all the caveats, you know, to try to get a a sexy title and a sexy abstract. And they go for, you know, a university press release, which is then exaggerated in the mainstream media. And what we end up getting is, you know, and it's really divorced from the original paper. And what you get is carefully crafted spin. And many of these papers don't even survive their press release before serious issues have been, you know, been raised about the papers, you know, the blogosphere has been, you know, great for um, extended peer review of many of these papers, and they've, you know, quickly identified flaws, but it doesn't matter to the scientists, they got their publication, they got their media hits, and their university is happy, and they go on to the next paper, there's no consequences at all for them being wrong. Huh. Wow. So I guess they get their grants too. They get them solidified oh, sure. based on the papers. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Wow. So so I mean, it sounds to me like science is really being ruined through all this process. I mean, we used to be able to say trust the science, but now like what? <laughs> what is this? It's not really science at all, is it? Oh, uh, climate science is really politics. I mean, the foundational science, atmospheric science, oceanography, geology and stuff. That's real science. But what goes for climate science these days is just impacts and, you know, ecologists with their scare stories and things like that. It's not, Mm -hmm. you know, that they're using (laughs) the reputation of the core disciplines and and science itself for all of this um, fuzzy impact stuff that really has nothing to do with science. Yeah, exactly. You know, I have a question. When you keep hearing these consensuses, like 97% of scientists agree, I mean, I find that when I look at those studies closely, there's two things that are missing. First of all, they're interviewing the wrong people. They're interviewing people, for example, who are polling people who study the impacts of climate change, not the cause in many cases. And also they're asking the wrong question. They're asking, did humanity cause climate change? Well, of course we cause climate change to some extent. But I mean, to me, the only really important question is, are we causing dangerous climate change? And they should only be asking the people who study the causes of climate change. Are those polls that they put out, have any, are they useful? Are they meaningful? Oh, oh, they're completely meaningless. And and there's an important distinction here. There's a scientific consensus and then a consensus of scientists. 
That's a very important distinction. I mean, the scientific consensus is like a topic you don't even talk about, you know, like the earth orbits the sun. You know, that's a fact. <laughs> we don't even need to talk about consensus. But when we have a consensus of scientists, this is something that's uncertain, and they've been asked by politicians to negotiate some sort of consensus on a topic. And of course, what result you get out of that depends on, you know, who you ask to manufacture the consensus. So it's just a complete political artifact, this whole mm. idea of the climate consensus. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I saw that a number of the scientific organizations are supporting the climate scare. So I contacted them and I said, before you put out your statement for the whole entity, did you poll your members to see if they agreed? And so far, I don't find any did. And in fact, there's an interesting story, Judith, in Canada. The Royal Society of Canada came out in great support of something to do with the climate scare. I can't remember. But a friend of mine, Archie Robinson, he was a fellow, Robertson, I should say, he was a fellow of the Royal Society, but nobody ever asked him. And yet his specialty was related to the climate issue. And so he called the president of the Royal Society of Canada and said, I only learned about this poll, you know, not the poll, but the statement from the Royal Society of Canada in the newspaper. Nobody ever asked me. And they said, well, we considered it consistent with the consensus of world scientists. So I signed it. <laughs> but they never asked their own members. <laughs> so, I mean, these statements, then, they're not very meaningful, are they? No, no, they're not meaningful. But the point is, professional societies have no business doing this. I mean, because once they issue those kind of statements, I mean, these professional societies publish journals, gives a message to editors and authors that don't even bother to submit any papers um, that challenge this. Okay, and, and so that's, you know, that kind of behavior is just anathema to the scientific process and the integrity of our research. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so when you went to meetings and you brought up questions about the science, uh, things that I guess the response was pretty negative. <laughs> well, I, mean, I went to a number of, you know, talk about uncertainty in the early days and people said, oh, yeah, yeah, we need to pay more attention to that. But at the end of the day, it was really more about communicating uncertainty and how to whitewash it rather than to uh, really understand it and better characterize it. So, you know, like in the early days, circa 2013, you know, I was still getting invites to give presentations at professional societies and at universities. So people wanted to, you know, serious scientists wanted to hear about all this. But um yeah, this was so I I was still had credibility in the scientific side of things, but not on the what I would say the public the public debate side of things. Mm -hmm. Right. And speaking of like uncertainty and uh, climate change, uh, could you tell us about a bit about your book, Climate Uncertainty and Risk? Ah, okay. Yay. Well, here we go. <laughs> My uh. new book provides a rethinking of both the climate change problem and our response, an intellectual counterpoint to the pervasive narrative of alarm and crisis. I've done my best to stake out a position as a centrist in the climate debate, and I tried to make the book as politically neutral as possible. The key premise of the book is that we've vastly oversimplified both the climate change problem and its solution, 
My book documents how the public portrayal of the climate change issue has exaggerated scientific certainty, the threat posed by climate change, our ability to predict climate futures, and our ability to control the climate. Now, part one of the book explains how we collectively got to where we are now with regards to the public misunderstanding and deep polarization on the issue. Part two unpacks the complexity of climate science in a way the layperson can understand. The book clarifies what we know and with what competence versus what we don't know and what we can't know. And part three of the book is on risk and response, which is the most important part of the book. The main theme of the book in this part three is that we badly mischaracterized climate risk. And this has led us to narrow precautionary set of policies to urgently eliminate greenhouse gas emissions. The urgent and rapid implementation of these policies will likely do humanity significantly more harm than good in terms of destabilizing our supply of energy and food. Um, the book argues for the abandonment of largely arbitrary emissions and temperature targets and provides a framework for climate policy that is based on current thinking and risk management sciences and decision-making under deep uncertainty. Hmm. So, yeah, it's published by an academic press, so it had to undergo rigorous peer review. There's 1,500 footnoted references. So it's an academic book, but it's not a technical book. I've tried to make it accessible to people from, you know, a wide range of backgrounds. I see. So you don't have to be a climate scientist to understand. Not at all. No. In fact, I think, you know, my publisher, it's a series that's really on, it's really for more for social scientists and the humanities. So in oh. many ways, this is, you know, lawyers, uh, social scientists, risk managers and stuff that this is the target audience more so than the climate science community, if you will. Mm -hmm. Is it available on Amazon? Oh, yeah. It's available in many places. It's available in hardback, paperback, and Kindle. Um, and you can buy it in a number of different places. It's already starting to show up in some university bookstores also. Oh, wow. Okay, good. So so I will put a link to the book underneath the podcast when it goes up on Monday. And uh, I'm going to get the book myself. That's for sure. Yeah, so uh, to, about some of the topics in your book, what can we say about with confidence about climate change and what climate change uh, field is more uncertain? Okay, well, here are the incontrovertible facts about global warming. First, average global surface temperatures have overall increased since about 1860. Carbon dioxide has infrared emission spectra and thus carbon dioxide acts to warm the planet. And third, humans have been adding CO2 to the atmosphere via emissions from burning fossil fuels. But we now know enough to reject the UN's extreme emissions scenarios for the 21st century as extremely unlikely. However, there's substantial disagreement and uncertainty about the most consequential issues. Whether these emissions have dominated over natural climate variability as the cause of the recent warming, how much the climate can be expected to change over the 21st century, and whether warming is dangerous. 
Now, science has little to say about whether warming is dangerous. This is an issue of values and perceptions. In my opinion, the weakest part of the whole UN argument is that warming is dangerous. There's little danger associated with the slow creep of global warming, some sea level rise and melting of glaciers, which started around 1860, following the end of the Little Ice Age. In some reasons, warming would actually be advantageous. The planet overall has been greening with increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And finally, for, for the past 50 years, the global weather has been fairly benign. In North America, the weather was much worse in the 1930s. Heat waves, droughts, and even landfalling hurricanes were much worse than anything we've experienced in the 21st century. So for any particular extreme weather event, you can invariably find something worse in the historical record. So the recent occurrence of extreme weather events says nothing about the impacts of fossil fueled warming. Even the IPCC acknowledges that there's little evidence that global warming is worsening extreme weather events, apart from heat waves. Any signal from global warming is very difficult to discern against the background of natural variability. So that pretty much summarizes the main things of what we know versus what we don't know. Yeah. So it's kind of a Pandora's box, I guess. If you're an environmentalist and you want everyone to think the science is settled, you don't want to take the lid off that Pandora's box because, oh, my God, the public will realize the science is anything but settled. Well, you know, of course, the science isn't settled and trying to, you know, pretend that it is does much harm to both the science and also to the policymakers. But in my book, I reframe the whole thing. You know, it's more of an uncertainty kind of framework. And, and this includes considering, you know, plausible worst case scenarios. There's a whole different way to frame this that doesn't necessarily preclude action on the issue. It, it basically just tries to move us away from this oversimplistic speaking consensus to power in terms of replacing fossil fuels with wind and solar, <laughs> which is pretty much a summary of what we have going on right now. Yeah. I don't know if you heard Chris Essex from, he's just retired from University of Western Ontario. He's a uh, applied mathematician. Yeah, he said that not, not only do we not understand climate, he said that generally speaking, we'll probably never be able to forecast climate with any particular accuracy because it is so complicated. Is that a reasonable statement? Oh, for, for sure. I mean, apart from natural internal variability, which is a big challenge, it's a chaotic, you know, stochastic kind of thing. It's simply not predictable. We also can't predict what the sun's going to do or what, or volcanic eruptions. I mean, you know, and you say, oh, that's not important. Well, you know, in the first half of the 19th century, there were three hugely explosive volcanic eruptions, including Tambora, you know, which cooled the planet by a degree, you know, Fahrenheit for a number of decades. It was, you know, the year without a summer and crops failed and famines and the whole works. And to think that that can't happen in the 21st century, well, we're fooling ourselves. Again, volcanic activity has been, for the last 150 years, the weakest of the entire previous millennium. So, so you know, natural 
there's a lot of really major forces of natural climate variability that are been completely marginalized by the IPCC's focus on emissions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, you know, it's interesting because one thing you mentioned in your description of your book and other things is the fact that warming is actually being beneficial. And I don't think very many people understand that. I mean, the Lancet had a paper which did a massive survey over many countries, and it found that 20 times more people die from the cold than from the heat. And, and, you know, I was at a presentation when I worked in the House of Commons from the World Bank, and it was a group of members of parliament who were there. And the World Bank fellow was going on and on about all these problems in the year 2050. But I noticed that they were farming right up in James Bay. <laughs> I put up my hand in my naivety and I said, oh, this looks really great for Canada. <laughs> so, I mean, well, well, surely a little bit of warming for at least for my country, it would be a good thing. Oh, for sure. I'm not just Canada, but, you know, northern U.S. and Russia and northern China would all benefit from, you know, warmer temperatures. Um but, you know, people don't like cold winters. Okay, in the U.S., the migration is away from New York and Illinois, which are cold states, towards Florida and Texas and Arizona, which are warm states. Um, you know, people don't like cold winters. And, you know, this whole issue of danger, I mean, people say, oh, well, the, the food production is going to collapse. Well, in the past 40 years or so, agricultural productivity in terms of yield has, you know, just skyrocketed, uh, you know, so we're, as long as we don't mess things up by like not allowing farmers to use fertilizers and killing off all their livestock. I mean, I mean we should do fine unless we, we really mess things up. Um, as people become more affluent, they're less vulnerable to extreme weather events, their infrastructure is better, and they have better emergency management protocols and so forth. So, you know, just general economic development helps us uh, reduce our vulnerability to extreme weather. So if we don't interfere with all that, you know, like (laughs) destroying our electricity, electric power infrastructure or something stupid like that. I mean, we should do fine in the 21st century in terms of slowly adapting to the slow creep of warming. Um, Mm -hmm. So, but if if we use all our resources on, you know, trying to pretend that wind and solar can provide all of our electric power, um, you know, if if we waste a lot of time and a lot of money on that, you know, we're going to be left way behind in having the resources to develop, you know, a really good infrastructure for the 21st century in terms of electric power, transportation systems, and so on. So, I mean, we're we're like, we're moving backwards on this whole issue, in my opinion. And we're making us more vulnerable um, to extreme weather events by the so-called UN climate, you know, agenda. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It's almost as if you're in an ocean liner and there's a storm approaching and the captain says, everybody man the lifeboats. Like, no, I want to be in the ship. (laughs) Anyway, we have to go for a break now. When we get back in the second half, 
I'd like to talk more about what a professor can do when they're facing this sort of thing. So my guest today, my guest and Mary Jean, my co-host guest, is Dr. Judith Curry, president and founder of Climate Forecast Applications Network, an innovative organization in weather and climate forecasting that we'll link to under the podcast. So we'll be right back after the break. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code out loud. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code out loud. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix RX. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix RX is already famous for a powerful virus hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, out loud 25 at checkout. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-term effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. Fortunately, Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at the wellness company designed their spike support formula with the miracle enzyme natokinase, scientifically studied to dissolve spike protein so you can feel your very best. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Change in the world one person at a time. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio. 
It's a fight for the soul of humanity. back with Dr. Judith Curry. Dr. Curry is president and founder of Climate Forecast Applications Network, an innovative organization in weather and climate forecasting. And she's a climate scientist and was professor and chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Georgia Tech for 13 years. So uh, what we want to ask next is how have governments and the media mischaracterized climate risk? First, we've oversimplified both the climate change problem and its solutions. We've mischaracterized both the problem and solution as irreducibly global. We've allowed a single policy solution of eliminating human-caused greenhouse gas emissions to frame the scientific problem and the risk from climate change. Natural climate variability is all but ignored, and warming is assumed to be dangerous. We've conflated the incremental risks from the slow creep of warming with the emergency risks of extreme weather events which have little or nothing to do with the warming. And we fail to recognize that what has been cast as a global crisis is for the most part, thousands of local vulnerability emergencies that are revealed by extreme weather events. And finally, climate change and extreme weather have been characterized as something we can control by reducing emissions. That's clearly a fairy tale. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting, you know, the Climate Policy Initiative out of San Francisco, they actually look at where climate finance is going. And what they find is only about 5 or 6% goes to adaptation. Almost all the rest goes to supposedly stopping climate change. Truly, really that even if you did think that we were causing dangerous climate change, uh, I mean, the UN wanted it to be a 50-50 split. So, I mean, this is a huge mistake. We're not preparing properly for climate change of a natural variety, are we? Um, absolutely not. Uh, or just the impacts, you know, we're going to have bad weather and droughts and whatever, and no matter what we do with climate emission, you know, with emissions, CO2 emissions. So, you know, let's deal with that. We ha- can have benefits from that here and now, rather than waiting till 2200 and see if all this slow sea level down a bit, you know, because it's, that's about the only thing <laughs> we're going to accomplish with all this. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. The thing I find amazing is if you look at the impact on New York City of Hurricane Sandy, there was one area in Manhattan that never lost its power, its electricity, its communications, because they had their cables buried underground. So, I mean, surely that's a no regrets approach that they should be using. Oh, for sure. It doesn't work in every region. You can't do that in Florida because of the underlying, you know, rocks and it's, it's too porous for that to work. But yeah, no, that's a good solution. Um, but managing our water resources, um, you know, we have floods and droughts, well, with more reservoirs, and we have to make sure our dams are in good repair, and these kind of things. And, you know, there's so many things that we can do to, re- and a lot can, be, and this is where my company comes in, Climate Forecast Applications Network, is advanced warnings gives um, electric utilities, it gives municipalities, it gives people, it gives trucking companies, whatever, time to plan and, you know, readjust their plans so they can minimize the impacts of the storm on their operations. So this is a big part of what my company does, and it can make a huge difference. 
um, in Florida. Again, Florida Power and Light has been extremely good at restoring power quickly after a hurricane hits. And they do this with, you know, very sophisticated monitoring and use and outage models and use of drones and on and on it goes. They use a lot of sophisticated technology to help them know what's coming, manage during the storm and then recover quickly. So Mm -hmm. this is, you know, we want to make things safe to fail. Things are bad things are going to happen, but if you know in advance, you can prevent the worst impacts. So your company actually helped these entities prepare for climate change. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they should contact you if, you know, different municipalities are concerned about, oh, how can we prepare for flooding or prepare for drought or whatever? You would be helping them. That's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes so much sense. I mean, I always find that, you know, when they talk about mitigating climate change, I mean, mitigating that's a confusing term i mean some people use it as a synonym for adaptation but generally speaking aren't they talking about reducing greenhouse gases to supposedly stop it from happening (laughs) Uh, i i know it's really in many ways a misuse of the term but that's when you're talking about mitigation of climate change you're talking Mm -hmm. about preventing it by eliminating co2 emissions (laughs) yeah that's right do you, uh, do you work with companies around the world or is it focused on the U.S.? Oh, around the world. Yeah, we just completed a very cool project in Australia, the owners of uh, or the operators of desalination plants. They want to know, you know, how much the desalination plants might be used in the coming decades so they could plan. That's one example. Um, another one is um, gold mining companies who are want to know about water resources so they can manage the environmental impacts of their mining operations, Um, oil companies who want site hazard assessments for their operations in, um, you know, extracting oil, Uh, wind wind farm owners who are looking to understand what the profitability might look like in the coming decades, is the wind going to slow down or speed up or do whatever? Those are the kind of things that we do on the climate scale for our clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess people have to differentiate between climate and weather. I mean, people locally will say, oh, my God, that storm was incredible. It's evidence of climate change. And I say, well, yeah, if it happened every year for 30 years, it would be evident. So, I mean, climate and weather, I mean, can you talk about the difference? Because most people don't seem to understand that. Well, extreme weather, people mainly care about extreme weather. And there are multi-decadal variations of extreme weather associated with the large-scale ocean circulation patterns. So, for example, in hurricane season in the Atlantic, you know, there's active periods. We've been in an active period since 1995. But the period 1970 to 1904 was a quiet period. And prior to that, it was active. And this was all tied to the Atlantic multidecadal oscillation. So, so that's an example where there is climate scale variability um, of extreme weather events. Certainly El Nino versus La Nina events, you know, bring very different profiles of extreme weather events. So natural climate variability really determines in many ways, 
the frequency and severity envelope of severe weather events that we encounter. Mm -hmm. And are those circulation patterns to some extent influenced by variations in the sun? Do you think that's the origin of the, the cause? Oh, some of it is just internal chaotic whatever, but I think the sun variations in the sun does set the tempo of some of these um, oscillations. Mm -hmm. So again, this is these topics aren't sufficiently researched because everybody's too busy um, analyzing the output of <laughs> climate models and you know the impact of emissions, you know. <laughs> There's not enough effort and money and scientific thinking that goes into these other topics. Mm -hmm, for sure. And uh, so at the beginning of the interview, you talked about how you've been ostracized in your, uh, in your job due to your views on climate change. Uh, how do you think professors and others in the academic community should respond to attempts uh, made to censor their views and their research? Well, two slightly different answers. Okay. Just read just, Focusing on the research, um, scientists who don't speak out publicly about climate policy and don't criticize other scientists publicly tend to get a pass in terms of their research. I mean, if, if their research is just, for example, in my book, I cite a lot of published research papers that if you just read that paper in standalone mode, you wouldn't, you know, notice that it's in any way skeptical or dangerous to the narrative. Okay. But in terms of the way I link them in part of an argument, then all of a sudden that paper, you know, is supporting a skeptical argument. So if you just focus on research and don't have any inflammatory words in your article, especially the title and the abstract, I mean, you'll probably get a path in terms of getting it published and being able to get funding for your research. But if you're speaking out publicly about policy and criticizing the behavior, the research of other scientists publicly, um, then you're fair game for getting clobbered by the very <laughs> powerful consensus, you know, enforcement machine. There's a currently couple of interesting cases. Um, a team of Italian researchers published a paper that showed no, no change in extreme weather events over, you know, since 1900. And the analysis was perfectly reason, reasonable, but in the conclusions, they had a sentence. So this shows that um, urgent action to reduce emissions aren't justified. <laughs> okay, and that, that single statement raise red flags, um, people, scientists massively complained to the editor of the jur journal. I and a couple of other scientists were called in to help adjudicate. And in the, in the end, they withdrew the paper from publication. Oh, okay. wow. Okay. That's insane. So, so they're, they're going to resubmit the paper to another journal and I'm helping you know, advise them you know, in terms of what red flags to avoid. There's another current case, um, Willie Soon and Ronan and Michael Connolly um, have been publishing a series of papers that I think are actually quite good analyses about solar variability and climate and how this is 
you know, ignored. And their other issue is about the urban heat island effect. So they've gotten their, they get their papers published. Now, Gavin Schmidt and, you know, the, the guys at realclimate.org are going after these papers. They're asking for a freedom of information. You know, they're asking for all the emails that the editor wrote related to these papers and they're trying to discredit these papers discredit these scientists and you know and, and so this is extreme um willie soon has a a high profile from way back when he was the first person out to criticize a hockey stick so anytime you wow. see willie soon that's a big red flag so you know one lesson is to avoid criticizing anything that Michael Mann is involved in because that'll, oh, okay. that'll bring out the attack dogs. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so Willie soon has just a big red target on him. Um, so, so it's sort of ugly, but you know, you know, just let these papers be published. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and have it stimulate discussion in the scientific literature, but they are so threatened about anyone who challenges the consensus because, you know, then they think because of their simplistic speaking consensus to power, then they think the whole house of cards falls down, you know, and, mm-hmm. but they are perverting um, climate science towards exactly what end I can't even understand. Mm-hmm. Well, if you were a junior scientist, let's say an assistant professor in a, in a university, you didn't yet have tenure and you were doing research and you found and you wanted to publish the fact that extreme weather was not increasing in a certain part of the world. I guess what you would do is just leave it at that. You wouldn't yeah, draw publish, any- publish it and, you know, have an innocuous title and an innocuous abstract and don't make any policy recommendations. Yeah. Just, just publish it straight, mm-hmm. publish it straight. And, and even tenure is no protection, <laughs> but any number of people who, you know, just became so uncomfortable that they either left or they saw the writing on the wall and they left before things got really ugly. Yeah. Um, but just keep your opinions to yourself. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, if, if somebody is passionate about speaking about the policy or political aspects, um, I would say you're better off in the private sector or, you know, at a think tank than in a university because you know the politics of the university is so overwhelmingly on the how shall i say the leftist alarmed side of all this that you're just going to find yourself in hot water let's say you know keep your mouth shut or you're better off in the private sector or a think tank kind of organization yeah and i guess what they could do is send the paper to people like me and James Taylor from Heartland and CO2 Coalition and say, hey, I'm not going to speak out in public about the policy implications of this, but you might want to. And we'd love it (laughs) because, of course, we're right in the the war. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So this is an advertisement to any climate scientist listening to this. If you find results that you'd like to see covered in the mainstream press, but you don't want to be the target. Yeah. Send it to us. Tom Harris at ICSC-climate.com is our homepage. So generally speaking, Judith, how would you recommend that we overcome the politicization of science? Because I think that is a huge, I mean, you shouldn't be able to tell theoretically if a person writing a paper is left or right wing. I mean, surely that shouldn't be visible based on a science paper. Well, okay. The problem is laziness and naivete 
by both scientists and politicians, you know, where they have tried to scientize politics. They say, listen to the science, you know, follow the science. Well, science doesn't lead anywhere. Okay, <laughs> that's not what science does. Okay, yeah. so, so so they're trying to have, you know, avoid the hard political decisions by just saying, well, science tells us to do this. And that's laziness on the part of the politicians and it's hubris on the part of the scientists. Until we get past that kind of behavior, it's gonna to be tough to overcome the politicization of science. But for really complex problems, I'm saying like, you know, like climate change, you know, a great deal of uncertainty, ambiguity and values and all this kind of thing. Don't focus on trying to insist that people agree on the assumptions or the science Try to find solutions and policies that people can agree on. I mean, you know, win-win kind of solutions. You know, a lot of the adaptation policies are win-win. Research and development into new energy technologies are win-win. Trying to avoid um, unnecessary air and water pollution, that's win-win. You know, to try to focus on these sort of things that people can agree on in, in policy space without necessarily talking about climate change. I mean, there's no, we need to divorce energy policy you know, from the climate change issue. We need to figure out what makes sense for the 21st century in terms of, you know, new infrastructure for more abundant and reliable and cheaper energy. Let's figure out how to do that without all mm -hmm. the, the stupid deadlines and whatever that are associated with climate change policies. So I, I think, you know, try to focus on the solutions and not the assumptions. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you, you, get, you get stuck, you know, which sides highly uncertain <laughs> facts are the most correct, you know, and like, you know, we don't need to go there. Just forget the assumptions. Let's talk about both sides put forward some policies and see what we can agree on. And then we can move forward and make and reduce our vulnerability to whatever, you know, mother nature might throw at us in coming decades. Mm -hmm. Could you tell me if this is a, a good example of a sort of no regrets approach and something that you would probably support? I don't know, but I'll see what you say. <laughs> a friend of mine from India, he said that when they have typhoons off the coast of the Bay of Bengal, every kilometer along the coast, they have storm shelters, multi-story storm shelters. So he said nobody has to walk more than half a kilometer if you live on the coast and you just go up two stories he calls it vertical evacuation. He says in Florida, they have horizontal evacuation where they jump in their cars and they try to get the heck out of the area. So surely building multi-story storm shelters would be a no regrets approach to handling what are inevitable and namely hurricanes. That's correct. But the geometry, like the geometry is, I mean, Florida is really exposed and like you can get hurricane course winds across the entire state not just in the coastal regions oh yeah and you know and the population yeah it, so it's i mean that's a solution and that can work but you want to have you know higher ground for people to evacuate to yeah evacuate you know you can't leave the state of florida because you know it's so long and you know it, it the, the 
traffic is prohibitive. You have to go inland. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, lives don't get lost in Florida unless people are stupid. Like during Hurricane Ian, a number of people, I mean, were killed on Fort Myers Beach just because they wanted to see the waves and ride the waves and, you know, do it. Wow. And yeah. that's that's why most of the lives were lost. You know, just relatively younger people being stupid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it'll be interesting to see if if new people coming into the field are going to be brave enough to stand up to this. Like, I find that most of the climate scientists that we interview are all in the second half of their careers or even retired. I mean, do you see young professors brave enough to actually explain and to research and publish things that conflict and narrative without actually, you know, they don't have to actually say, you know, it's the narrative's wrong, but are there young scientists who are prepared to publish things that are contrary? Okay, well, well, I can think of a couple of examples of young scientists who actually chose not to go into academia because (laughs) they could tell it wasn't going to be comfortable for them. And one who left before his tenure decision because, you know, he could just see the writing on the wall. This is just not going to work. In terms of young scientists doing, you know, exciting research um, that I can look at and weave into like a skeptical narrative, if you will, but it wouldn't be real obvious to most other people. I mean, they're going to do fine. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a delicate dance, but scientists shouldn't have to play this game. But it's... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess one of the keys is to not criticize a person, not to question their honesty. uh, Because, you know, I look at Dr. Tim Ball, who I, I love Tim Ball. I mean, he was a wonderful guy. But he had a funny little saying. He said, uh, Michael Mann shouldn't be at Penn State. He should be in the state pen. Well, yeah, it sounds kind of funny, but at the same time, there's an implication there about dishonesty. I mean, surely that's what young scientists should be very careful to avoid. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Now, I didn't, you know, back in 2010, I did not criticize individual scientists. I was criticizing organizations mm-hmm. like the IPCC, like professional societies. So I avoided criticizing individuals. I focused on institutions and organizations, but that still got me in trouble because they were regarded as sacred cows. But you'll you'll get yourself sued <laughs> if you like oh, no. in, um, if you if you start criti- you know, if you start criticizing people individuals publicly in a way that's potentially libelous. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And of course, science isn't supposed to be about that anyways. I mean, we can be friendly, we can agree to disagree on a particular topic without being disagreeable. I mean, that's another thing Kim Ball said. Yeah, that's, you know, disagreement is used to be the spice of academic life. Now you have, now you have to cancel your opponents. (laughs) You know, it's just like a totally different mindset. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that kind of revealing? Because, I mean, I don't know if you're, I'm a fan of Star Trek and the next generation with data. And he was sent to evacuate a colony and he was telling people, look, you know, these aliens are coming to take over the planet because it's officially theirs. And you better get out of here because they don't actually like humans. And so they tried to stop him. And he said, is your point of view so weak, it cannot stand rational debate? To which they lasered him and turned him off. So, I mean, that, I guess, is is the point. I mean, the fact that they are prepared to censor people and cancel people and ruin careers. I mean, isn't that a little bit revealing 
with regards to the the uncertainty that actually is in the science. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it reveals the weakness of their arguments, not to mention flaws in their characters. Yeah, for sure. So I guess that line from Star Trek is your point of view is so weak, it cannot withstand rational debate when someone just smears you. I mean, I guess that's, that's probably the, the truth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, our discussion today has been really interesting. Dr. Judith Curry is president and founder of Climate Forecast Applications Network that we'll link to under the podcast. That's an innovative organization in weather and climate forecasting. And as we just heard, Judith's organization actually helps people and organizations prepare for climate change. Adaptation, you know, that is, of course, the right way to go. So thanks so much for being on our show today, Judith. Okay, thank you. I enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, that's great. So this is Tom Harris with my co-host, Mary Jean Harris, and our guest, Dr. Judith Curry, signing out from the other side of the story.